Go ahead and open your Bible to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 18. I hope you have enjoyed a quiet weekend so far. Um, I, I tell you, I'm excited about next tomorrow morning. If you want to join me at 9:30, we'll be down at the um, there at the lawn, the memorial lawn, right down in the heart of our city, is we're going to have a ceremony for Memorial Day. I hope that you'll come. If you've never attended, it's always a blessing to be with others and giving. And it, it, it helps me as I think about how to give thanks for those who have given so much. So maybe you'll think about coming if you don't have plans tomorrow. And maybe after that you can then get on with whatever task you might have, cutting the grass or whatever else you might feel like you need to do the remainder of your day. But it's been a good weekend so far. Yesterday I got to go to the Braves game. And yeah, I, I wish it would have turned out a little differently than it did. I had a really good time with our friends from Kentucky. They all came down, and we all got to go to the game. We, I tried to get these tickets a month ago, and they landed us in the... When your ticket says general admission, um, don't think that means you're going to have a good surprise when you get to the park. We sat way up in the top, and we got to see everything really well. We had, we had an eagle-eyed view of all that happened in that ball game. But while we were there, I got to tell you, I love the company. I enjoyed watching the Braves. They finally got a home run in the ninth inning. But can I just tell you, it just didn't work out like I hoped because the Braves yesterday just did not win. And we watched the entire game, and our Bravos, though they have all of this firepower on the offensive side of the field, they only managed in that game to get three hits. Well, all of this took my mind back to where we were last week in talking about the issue of marriage that I think is very prevalent in our world today. Because many people assume that if a couple is compatible, if a husband and wife just simply are soulmates, that marriage is not going to be that difficult, that it should prove easy. That if a couple is just simply in love, they're going to have what they need so that marriage will just come naturally for them. But then the honeymoon ends, doesn't it? Life occurs, and fulfillment in marriage can sometimes in our lives prove to be just as hard as it was yesterday for any brave to connect with a Philly pitcher fastball. And the reason that marriage is so difficult, if you remember where we started last week, is that you never marry the right person. And that also means for every single person who's married, you always marry the wrong person. Now let me explain to you what I mean by that. It doesn't give you a reason to go out and to go find a lawyer right now. Don't do that. But I really believe Stanley Hauerwas is completely correct when he says this. We never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. For marriage being the enormous thing that it is, means we are not the same person after we have entered into it. And the primary problem is, says Howard Wass, 
learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. So this morning we're going to plunge back into our Bibles to find the answer to the question, how can I learn to love and care well for my spouse when he, this morning, is what we're going to talk about, is constantly changing, but really she too. Last week we learned about how the Bible answers that question in Ephesians 5 for husbands, and today we're going to focus on the answer to that question for wives. I read, again, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 and following for a reason. And I really draw, want to draw your attention this morning to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32. Because it is in that verse that we get a hint as to why so many find happiness and fulfillment in marriage something that is elusive. The Apostle Paul describes marriage as being a profound mystery. And this tells us there is a secret, the Greek word mysterion, in marriage. Now, if you're struggling, I hope what you now will find next, or even if you're knowing that your marriage could be, while it's good, it could be even better, I hope you'll hear what I have to say next, and I hope you'll find it as it's intended to be. This is exciting news. Because while marriage is a profound mystery, here's the reason why we have Ephesians chapter 5. God wants us to lean in close and to know what that mystery is. And there is clarity given to us in the Bible in the mystery. As it says earlier in chapter 5 of Ephesians verse 18, when you are filled with the Spirit, what will make your marriage sing, which is always the result of your soul and your heart, that you, when you're filled with the Spirit, declare songs and hymns and spiritual songs, what will make your spirit sing and your marriage sing is when you discover the secret of marriage in your relationship with Christ and the church. It's the relationship of Christ and the church that unveils the mystery. So when Jesus gave himself up for us, he gave to us the key in the gospel for how we not only understand marriage, but then also how we pattern our lives after it and we live it out in a way that pleases and glorifies God. So it is important for us to understand the verse that comes before Paul's description that he calls a mystery. You read what he says right before it? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And this verse takes us about as close to the beginning of your Bible as you can turn. Go all the way to the front, which we've already done, hopefully, but if you haven't yet, just go to the front. You've got the title page, then you've got the first words of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1. That's where we're going to begin. Genesis 1.27. That is where we read that when God created us in his likeness, he created us both male and female. And God made us this way from the start. I would even argue before you were even in your mother's womb, God knew that you would be male or you would be female. And we need to start there because this truth does confront the misunderstandings of our current culture. 
there is clarity in God's design, as we see it in Genesis chapter 1, and that clarity is beautiful. We lose a part of ourselves if we embrace the idea of our culture that gender is a mere social construct that then, at some point in our development, we can then choose. Not what the Bible teaches. In the beginning, God determined that we were either male or female. And he created us this way in his likeness. And as he did, both male and female possess absolute, beautiful equality. But God then tells us in the next verse what our mandate should be as we live out our lives as male and female. We're to be fruitful and fill the earth. So this is our mandate for procreation, which is something that requires a husband and wife to work together and do together to fulfill what God's design is in chapter 1, verse 28. Now that I've explained all that in chapter 1, now I want you to move over to Genesis chapter 2. Don't have to go much further, but we're going to pick up this morning in verse 18, because this is the context that Paul explains, if you'll remember from Ephesians 5, is the mystery of marriage. Look with me in verse 18 and following, we're going to read through verse 24. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man, here it is, shall leave father and mother, the mystery, and hold fast to his wife, and they will be called one flesh. This is what I want you to think about this morning when we think about what the Bible teaches, in particular to wives. Remember this, the gospel redeems a wife's role in marriage so that her incompatibility with her husband is transformed into their marriage's completeness. That is what the power of the gospel does. It takes two people that are incompatible in their differences and transforms them through the power of the work of God, through the power of Christ, so that a husband and wife can be together and be made complete. So as we dig into these verses, I want to begin our discussion of a wife's role in marriage by moving us to understand how we go from chauvinism then to creationism. How do we do that? Well, every love story, I want you to remember this, every love story between a husband and a wife Every single one. You can think of all the best of them. If I were to ask you what's your favorite love story, even 
Bob Andrews would have an answer to one of those. We don't talk about our love, love stories a lot when we have coffee together, but I'm sure he even likes a good love. We all, but every single love story, whether it's something you've seen on TV, something you've read about, my girls talk about having, having book crushes sometimes. I mean, I, I hear all about that. Every good love story that you read about in, the, in, in your Bible or in, in, in literature or that you see demonstrated in your family or someone that you respect, all of these love stories have their origin in this text that I just read to you. It all starts here when God made Eve out of Adam. Because when God sees that Adam is alone, you see what he says? That's not good. And this is the first thing in the universe that God has declared to be imperfect as you're reading your way through Genesis 1 and 2 on into Genesis 3. So God gives Adam a dose of divine amnesia. He performs surgery with is a song that Pastor Adam introduced me to with a knife from heaven. And out of Adam, God took his rib and formed from that rib his wife. And this is the premise of biblical male headship. Adam is the physical source, and he is given then the responsibility to aim that female that God has fashioned, that helper suitable for him, just as he's named everything else that he's given dominion over. But never is Eve described after being created as being lesser of the two or as one who is given an inferior role. She is called Adam's helper, it says in verse 18. And that word, it comes from the Hebrew word azer which is translated here with the word helper, but that doesn't adequately give us the full idea of what that word means. An azer or a helper, if we translate it just with helper, you know what it sounds like? It sounds like a person who assists another person in doing a task or doing something that, just to be honest, they could probably get done all by themselves. Don't misread it into thinking that a helper is like a subjugated intern or something like that. I don't want you to think of it that way. Because when we think about a helper, azer is much more than that. This word is used most commonly in the Bible to describe God himself as our azer, as our helper. And you may think it interesting that I'm preaching on the role of wives on Memorial Day weekend. But maybe when we understand Azer more fully, we then understand how appropriate it would be that we would address this issue on a day like today. Because Azer is often used when describing military help, like reinforcements the, uh, uh, on a battlefield, that if those reinforcements did not show up at just the right time, the war would be lost. So to help someone, to be a helper, is to make up for what the other person is lacking in their own resources and in their own strength. So Adam didn't just need a companion to end his loneliness. Adam needed help. And that's not all that we learn from a wife here, about a wife here. She is a helper fit for Adam. And this is where it really gets fun. Because the word translated fit gets us on the path, but again, it doesn't tell the full story. The word is actually a compound phrase that is literally 
It literally means she is like opposite him. So I hope you see when you think about this understanding of a Azer, this like opposite him that God has blessed Adam with, not just to end his loneliness, to be his source of help. I hope you'll see how there is no chauvinism in the Bible's description of gender roles. That when a rib is removed from Adam and is used to create Eve, this strongly asserts that a husband is incomplete without his wife and a wife is incomplete without her husband. They are like opposite. Like two pieces of a puzzle that are not alike but must be fit together to make the complete whole. That's how we begin to move from chauvinism, this misread of what it means to be a helper in our culture, to be submissive to your husband and all of the baggage that sometimes people have. It. We need to move from this understanding of chauvinism to creationism. That's where it all begins. But then I want you to take it, as we continue in the book of Genesis, to move from confusion to clarity. Okay, so God makes husband and wife to be like opposites, so that through their distinctions they come together and they are then made complete. Well, why then does so much not feel that way, right? Why is it that there are so many times that the completeness, the wholeness, after so many months or for some years or for decades of marriage, why is it sometimes hard to come by this? What goes wrong in all of it? Why do these things feel on their best days, sometimes days of confusion, and sometimes just downright painful. Well, the beginning of the Bible, you just go a little further, and it explains all of this too. That after God placed Adam and Eve in the garden, in a place of complete paradise where he provided every one of their needs, they were only given one instruction. There was only one tree that was forbidden for them. And then they rebelled against God, they took of the fruit of that one forbidden tree, and then you see the result as sin enters into the world in Genesis chapter 3 that results in their death, results in, their, in the curse, and that is where the confusion becomes immense. Because ever since, according to Genesis chapter 3 verse 16, the desire for a wife is to step over and assume the role of the husband and his abdication of his role of leadership, which, by the way, led to the problem of sin to begin with. You see this tension. It's part of the curse. He will constantly fight the sinful response to rule over his wife in a way that is hurtful, authoritarian, and dictatorial. So how do we get away from, as I described last week, what happens every time you get on that covered bridge, the cars aren't playing nice, you have the two playing chicken with each other, who's going to bend the wheel first? When you find yourself in that standoff in marriage, when you find yourself falling back into what is described as the curse of the fall, how do you get from that place to a place then a beautiful clarity back to a place of redeemed completeness. In other words, how does God fix this mess? And the fix 
The solution, the mystery of marriage is found in the person of Jesus and in the work of Christ. Because as you'll see right from the promise that there will come a day in Genesis chapter 3 that the curse will be lifted as though Satan the serpent will strike the heel of the child who is born of woman, that son will crush his head. The promise is there that the curse will be lifted when Jesus comes and fulfills all of that on the cross. And all of that brings us then back to understanding how to overcome the capability struggles that we have in marriage. The compatibility struggles rather than marriage. Because Jesus is the head who gives himself for the bride. But also I want you to see what else we learn of Jesus. He is also the azer to us. The helper to us. So I want to explain how that all works. Though Jesus, the Bible says in Philippians 2, was equal with God in every way, Jesus is the one who emptied himself of his glory and took on the lesser role of the servant. And he never lost an ounce of his divinity, but he willingly laid aside all the benefits of that divinity. So in the Trinitarian relationship of the Father and the Son, the Son submits to the Father to secure our salvation, and he was not coerced into this submission, but he gave himself in this way voluntarily as a gift to his Father. And this was in no way an assault on Jesus' dignity, and it isn't an assault on our wives as they then assume, uh, as they then um, submit to the headship of their husbands, just like Jesus submitted to the headship of the Father. So do you see how this works? As wives are the strong helper, both husbands and wives have a Jesus role within their marriage. And it is much like a slow dance within marriage. The husband leads and the wife follows. The husband initiates, the other responds. Why do men get to lead? That's a good question if they're both equal. Why is the husband the head? Well, at the end of the day, we don't know the answer to that. Why was Jesus the Son, the one who submitted and served? And why was it Jesus the Son and not God the Father? We don't know, says Kathy Keller in her wonderful book that she wrote with her husband, Tim, The Meaning of Marriage. But this is a part of the mystery. We don't know why it's like this, but we do know that it was a sign of Jesus' greatness and not his weakness. So it is with wives when they have the Azer role, the Jesus role in marriage. So Paul writes in Ephesians 5 to help us walk the path, do you see this? From the incompatibility of being a male and a female to the completeness of being a husband and a wife. And the roles in the home are not born out of chauvinism, they're born out of creationism. The confusion that was caused by the fall finds its, confu- finds its solution and its clarity 
in understanding rightly the work of Jesus in the gospel. But then I want to finish up the discussion of the mystery by moving from the bloody cross to the picture of the church. This is a mystery. It says that in Ephesians chapter 5. Paul says what I'm talking about is the relationship of Christ and the church. So a husband is called to love his wife. The wife is called to submit to her husband. And this is the picture of Christ in the church. On the cross, the love of God is there for others. And the others are you and me. The sinners who are hostile and set up against the Lord. And if you think about it, more than anything else that we could ever find, this requires ultimate sacrifice. The easiest thing to have been done would have been for Jesus after he was betrayed and rejected. It would have been easy for him to leave. But he didn't. He embraced us fully. He took on himself all of the penalty of our sin. He drunk the wrath of God down to the dregs. And he stayed on the cross all the way to the end until he voluntarily and willfully gave up his spirit. And he did all of this so that we could then be led into a place of perfect unity with God. So it is in marriage. It makes us unified when the different the incompatibility of husband and wife, when all of that gets redeemed by the work of Jesus, and then it gets fit together in a place to where it is completely unified. That is why a husband is called on to love his wife, and a wife is called to submit to her husband. But if you ask the question, why are husbands called to love and wives called to submit? Why are wives not called to love too? I love John Stott's answer. A wife's submission is but another aspect of love. What does it mean to submit? It is to give oneself up to somebody. And what does it mean to love? It is to give oneself up for somebody. You know, when I was getting ready to preach this, I couldn't help but remember when my father-in-law made it so hard on me when I went to him to ask for his blessing to marry his daughter. I won't tell you all the details of that conversation. It's between he and I. We've talked about it some since. But I will tell you this. He didn't make it easy on me at all. And I will have no problem following that example when my four daughters have some boy coming to me doing the same thing. And part of the reason I won't struggle with that, making it hard on them too, is because it is such a big deal, isn't it? And in Ephesians 5, 
which is the longest discussion in the New Testament of the role relationship of husbands and wives. Always remember, especially you fellas, there are 47 words directed to wives and 143 words directed to husbands. And as the father of four girls, as I think about my future son-in-laws, it ought to be this way. But even more than that, what I want you to walk away remembering is this. That the union of a husband and a wife is an illustration of the intimate and the close union that exists between Christ and his bride, which is his church. As husbands, we are to love our wives like Jesus loves. That means that we love our wives so much that we're willing to go all the way to the grave if called upon to do so for them. Wives, the text tells us that you're called to submit to your husbands in everything. That means not that you follow them into some sort of compliance if they're asking you to walk into things that you know God is displeased with in sin, but it doesn't mean that, but what it means is that wives and Every way that you can, you cultivate affirmation and support and respect in regard to your husband's leadership. This is a dance we're going to take. Husbands, we sin whenever we're authoritarian, whenever we decide we want to rule in a way that does not think about the well-being of our wives, and we do not remember the servant example of Jesus who came as God himself to this earth, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Any time that we lead in a way that does not honor and serve our wives, we are leading in a way that is sinful. But it also means that a wife sins when through her descent backwards into the curse and the confusion of the fall. She behaves in a way that disregards her husband's leadership. And honestly, since both husband and wife are sinners, and we will be until we go home to be with him in Jesus, that means that in this beautiful, slow dance of marriage, there are plenty of times that we're going to step on each other's toes. And when other people look at it, they see it and they think they're just not as graceful as they ought to be. But through recentering our marriages on the person of Jesus and his work in those times, we're calling upon the main two tools for marriage that God has given us as husband and wife, which is confession of sin and humility, and then repentance, turning from that sin. And doing things differently in a way that glorifies God. Even though there's times that our toes are sore in our marriages. We continue the dance. And the longer we walk with Jesus. The more we become like him. The more the dance becomes beautiful. The way that God intended it to be. I want to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes.
so thankful for the Word of God that transcends traditional sort of moorings and all the things that we might get caught up in and trappings to show us what it really means for a husband to love his wife and for Christ to be the example and for wives to submit to their husbands also fulfilling the Jesus role doesn't that transcend so many of the arguments we get steeped in but all of it shows us how utterly and desperately we need Christ the power for our marriage is in the gospel and if we're turning to anything else that we might contrive in our own effort we're always going to fall short and never miss hit the mark if you're here today and you're just struggling just invite you to think about this message that you would turn to Jesus in the struggle maybe you've got a good marriage but you know it could be better and you're wondering how it could really reach the heights that you know it could be just look under Christ his finished work look under Christ his ultimate example because when you do he takes that which is incompatible and he makes it complete that's what the gospel does for all of us in this room it just shows us wherever we might be if we're longing for a husband if we miss the wife that we have had in our widowhood whatever it is it just shows us how every aspect of our life we need to just cling to Jesus he's the source so I just pray that if you've never done that in a personal way never trusted in Christ that today will be the day that you transfer all your hope and trust and put it in him for whatever it is that's aching in your heart when the roles of gender we reverse back and we go back to the curse and the challenges therein that we can just cling to Jesus to show us the way forward if you need to grab someone ask them just to pray for you pray that we'll do that Father I just thank you so much for your word pray that you'll use it to shape us and sculpt us into your image in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.